the moment you start evaluating at the level of real world performance and you start getting people to share their the learning that they've accomplished as a result of applying what they got from the set phase it sends very powerful signals across the organization regarding accountability and what is expected of people and it's that signaling mechanism that is so for me is one of the most important aspects of this Welcome to the Learning Way Working Podcast. I'm Robin Pettit, the host of the podcast and also the founder of Sprout Labs. In this podcast, I'm talking with Jeff Ripp. Jeff's a regular at the webinars I run, and his contributions during those are always insightful. In this particular interview, I'm talking with Jeff about his six levels of evaluation model. This relates to his ready, set, go, show model for learning as well. During the interview, Jeff gives a summary of what this model is. This podcast is a little bit longer than the interviews I normally do, but there's lots of rich ideas. There's a mixture of strategy and tactics in this one. Also, I'm not using my standard microphone for this particular interview, so the audio is not great as well. In the show notes, there's a link to Jeff's write-up of this particular conversation and also some more articles on Jeff's Ready, Set, Go show model as well. Jeff, welcome to the Learning Way Working Podcast. Thank you, Robin. You've been doing lots of interesting work with uh, learning evaluation at the moment. What does most learning evaluation activity miss? To answer that question, I really need to, I guess, go back to some of my research and and the implementation process that I, I developed uh, in order to clarify what, what was missing. And I guess out of that, why I've actually designed the evaluation model that I have. So what does that implementation model look like, Jeff? Okay, so so I think the key thing really is that, that when I was researching effect, uh, training effectiveness, uh, and and my my overall aim was was in fact to develop a a methodology. That's what I really was trying to do was to develop a methodology that would enable me to design faster and get better results. And I have to be honest, that was that sort of came about. As a result of my consulting work, I, I realized very quickly that uh, my training needed to be effective, but I also realized that I needed to speed up the process of design so that because it was uh, it, would be, it was very expensive on us to be designing and, and spending an enormous amount of time churning out customized designs. So in the process of doing the, the research into uh, developing a model, which, which I, interestingly enough, became known as the predictable performance design methodology. The, in the process of doing that, one of the things that I stumbled across was the fact that what, what most people talk about transfer of learning, uh, in my perception, was incorrect, um, certainly based on my own experience. And, and what I mean by that is, if I, can, if I can just map it out a little bit, is that I found that most definitions of transfer of learning implied that all the learning took place in some sort of a training session or course or program or whatever you want to call it. And then that learning was was lifted up and, and exported back into the workplace. The idea being that the knowledge and skills that were developed in, in the training, which is what it was called, and then implemented in the workplace, which was no longer part of training because the, the word training was reserved for the learning process. And what I very quickly found was 
that many of the people that were going back to the workplace were in fact not competent. So I, I'm not sure if I told you the, the story of my research where I went and asked uh, at least 100 learning and development professionals over a period of time uh, a very simple question. I said to them, what is the level of, of competence of the participants at the end of these training events or learning events that you guys are running? And I gave them a scale from the Dreyfus model of skill acquisition. And the scale went from uh, novice, advanced, beginner, competent, uh, proficient, and expert. And what really fascinated me was that almost, I think it was somewhere between 95 to 98% of all the people I spoke to uh, rated the, the participants at the end of the training session uh, as not yet competent. And it struck me that if people are not yet competent, well, then where are they becoming competent? Uh, and, the, of course, the answer to that is when they go back into the workplace. So I, I then went and asked a whole lot of managers and I said, gave them the same scale. And I said to them, all right, um, you know, what do you want from people that are going through the training? How would you, what, what level would you like to see? from novice, advanced, beginner, competent, proficient or expert. And of course, they all came back and said either competent or proficient. So that's really what set me on this journey uh, of designing a process that said, all right, we need to incorporate more seriously uh, a, a way of helping people when they get back into the workplace to move from not yet competent to competent and then to proficient. So I'm, I know I'm taking it sort of circling around this, uh, but I think it's it really underpinned everything that I was trying to do. And in reality, I never set out to actually design a, a model of evaluation. It sort of fell out by accident out of the work that I was doing and coming up with a with an approach to implementation. I hope that's sort of making sense, uh, Robin. Yeah, so essentially the, the evaluation model came from the sense that in some ways what was missing from actually the quite often a lot of learning models is a consideration of um, competency development and the holistic understanding of what happens as, as people make a change. It's not always just about the learning event, learning resource, learning learning intervention, whatever we want to call it, that we, we're so used to using. What's the major steps in your particular model, Jeff? Yeah, so I uh, what I did was I, I decided to choose language that I thought would be make it easier, for, not just for learning and development professionals, but for managers and participants. Because I found that many of the managers and the participants that I was talking to didn't really understand what an effective training program actually looked like. And so I ended up, after brainstorming all sorts of names, I ended up calling it Ready, Set, Go, Show. But there's some really significant differences in the, in the Ready, Set, Go, Show model compared to what I saw in the marketplace. So if I can give you an example, uh, the Ready phase uh, is, is all about getting the participants ready for the learning that's coming, but in fact doesn't involve what most people would assume uh, one would include in that is which is pre-work. There's no uh, when I say, I say there's no pre-work. There's no content related to the learning objectives in that phase. Uh, so the ready phase is all about priming the brain, um, boosting perceived relevance, uh, getting participants to to stop and think about why the, how they will benefit from the the learning that's coming up. And then the the set phase is that term I use because I'm setting them up for the learning that's going to happen when they go back into the workplace. So the set phase is your is your more typical 
course, or um, some people might call it a program. I tend to call it a course. It could be micro learning. It could be e-learning. It could be a whole range of different things, but it's all focused mainly on achieving learning objectives. Uh, in And typically, uh, when I say off the job, I mean out of the, the to use a popular expression, is that out of the flow of work, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're out of the workplace. And the third uh, phase then is the go phase. And I identified two what I called uh, imperatives in the go phase. Now, I, I also refer to them as tracks because they sort of run parallel with each other. But the two imperatives were one, to, to reinforce learning that took place in the set phase because we needed something to combat the forgetting curve. And the second one was to support on-the-job application that would move people through an informal learning process of applying their learning and, and learning from the process uh, of application. So these two tracks uh, happen simultaneously and they do tend to rub off against each other in a, in a sense that we, if we prompt people uh, to remember and recall something because we know that recall helps to strengthen neural pathways uh, and helps people to, in fact, strengthen their memory, that will often end up as a nudge for people to encourage them to go and apply their learning. Um, and applying the learning in the workplace also helps them to better remember the things, obviously, that they're applying. So that, that phase, the go phase in my model, is particularly relevant to, uh, I guess, to driving results out of uh, these training sessions. And then the show phase comes at the end, and that is really where the participants... Uh, are involved in sharing what they've learned. In fact, I call it sharing and shining. It, it's about sharing what they've learned with their colleagues. Uh, it could be with managers, could be with a broader organization, but it's also getting feedback, uh, recognition, and providing recognition to people that have helped them along the way in their, in their learning journey, as again, to use a more modern expression. So that's, that's a sort of ready, set, go, show model and I call it a model because underneath each of those phases is a methodology for, for making that happen. Just a really nice, catchy way of being able to remember it. It hasn't got too many steps, Jeff. I just think that's, that's, that's part, of, part of what's really sweet, sweet about it. It has a nice flow to it. Um, actually, there's a huge amount I want to dive in with it. With it. <laughs> <laughs> I, could, I find I, I have to try and restrain myself because it's there's so much one, can, so much rich stuff you can talk about under those terms. <laughs> so just to come, uh, I just actually want to go back to the reason why you developed it to start with, which so many people end up in that same spot and they start to think about templates. And what I think is different about what you've done is you've actually said there's a learning flow through things rather than seeing they're saying that there's actually a template. Is that a fair assessment of it? Yes, it is. And, you know, if you go back to, uh, for example, the definition of transfer, which is very much seen to be what I call lift and shift, you know, you lifting learning and then somehow depositing it back in the workplace. It has two unfortunate side effects that I've seen amongst learning and development people. The, the first is it, it puts more emphasis on the learning because after all, all they're doing is picking their learning up and putting it down in the workplace. So there's this unwritten message in a sense that says, well, we really got to get that learning right. And, and that's that's true. But then the other side tends to get forgotten. And the, and the other part of it is that it overlooks the changes that are happening when people go back to work. And there are two 
fundamental changes, the changes in the individual as they're learning and growing from application. And the other one, which is, is I find particularly interesting, is the changes in their work situation as they interact in context in the workplace and they start making changes to the world around them. So uh, the come back to your question, uh, the set phase is, is all about learning uh, and the go phase is also really all about learning because it's an informal learning process uh, of applying that learning in the workplace in order to further their development. So I like to think that to come back to your point, there's a flow of learning that runs right throughout the ready, set, go show process. And interestingly, it has significant impact on on the way people look at it, because if learning is is fundamental to the go phase, then it immediately raises the question: What what do we do as learning and development professionals? Because you know that's our area of expertise. <laughs> what are we doing to facilitate that learning process? <laughs> yeah, and it's just even as he talked through it, it was actually the go phase was was actually different to what I was expect, expecting as well. Yeah. Um, actually, it's also what's really lovely, honest, links back to some of the recent podcasts on neuroscience, is a lot of this is actually underpinned by some really, some, some really sweet neuroscience. Bridget Alexander in her book talks about the fact if you ask people questions before they know something, it actually literally builds somewhere in their brain for it. So that set process you're talking about, yeah, has some really nice cognitive science and neuroscience backing it up. Um, so that's a learning model. How does this overlap and how is it related to the evaluation model? So the, the if uh, I, I do, I guess, uh, you know, that lovely expression of uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> I've, I've, uh, I've obviously gone and, you know, be, over the years, I've become very familiar with lots of evaluation models. And I mean, I'm pretty sure that even without realizing it, I've probably incorporated you know stuff from what I've learned in that area. But there are some some differences. Uh, Robin, can I walk you maybe through the just the stages in it, just to clarify that? Or would that be a that, that would be fantastic. That would be really good for the audience as well. Yeah. Okay. So I'll I'll relate it I'll relate it back to uh, to the to the model. So essentially, I call it the six lenses model, and three of the lenses relate to the set phase, and three of the lenses relate to the go and show phase. Now, I actually I should really say um, lenses one, two, and three relate to the ready phase and the set phase because the ready phase and the set phase are sort of naturally fit together quite comfortably, and then the other three lenses relate to the go and the show phases. So that was very important to me because it's deliberately designed to overlap with that model. Um, I'll just run through them, but I, I do what most the, most models these days do is that we, you know, we start with the end in mind and we define what the performance outcomes are that we want to accomplish. And then we work backwards from that as well to, to say, well, what sort of behaviors do we want to see in the workplace and what sort of performance and, and then going even further back to Okay, what sort of learning do we want, and so on? Um, but if we, if I go through in the opposite direction, because I think that's easier to understand it. Lens one is what I call participation, and that's not new. That's been around for a long time, and we tend to look at two things there: attendance and activity. 
um, if, if it's necessary to look at that. Um, but I put them in the model because I wanted to connect it to what other models have done. Uh, lens two is perceptions, which really, I guess, would relate to what most people would in, in the past have called reactions. So we're looking at the participant reactions to the primarily to the learning process that they've been through. Uh, in this, this is of course in relation to the set phase. So the you know what has the learning process been like, uh, and it could delve down as far as things like psychological safety. You know, did, did they feel they were in a safe environment? Did they feel they were able to speak up and so on? And then lens three is where it really starts getting interesting. So lens three is what I call realistic performance. And the reason I use that is because one of the things that came out of my research is that the word performance, particularly in the research literature, is being widely used to mean performance uh, in a learning uh, event or in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, what they would call often just call it training in training. And the other thing I realized was that the performance we need to get is, is obviously realistic performance in that if, if we don't move people as closely as possible to workplace performance, then the chances of them actually using it are significantly diminished. So that was why I went down the road of realistic performance. The, the, under realistic performance, I, we look at three things, knowledge, skill, and what I call performances. Um, so knowledge, I think, is pretty straightforward. Skills uh, in, included decision-making and judgments, uh, making judgments under skills. And uh, the third one, performances, comes closest to, I think, what most people would call tasks. But under performances, I include both structured and unstructured performances. So a structured performance might be completing a specific routine uh, that's mapped out in advance uh, whereas uh, unstructured might be using basic principles uh, such as in communication in order to communicate in a variety of different situations. So that's um, that's very much what we what I'm looking at in the in the set phase. I do find uh, another I think another point that's relevant here is that a lot of the research I came across talked about moving people to mastery point of mastery, but the mastery they were talking about was mastery in the training uh, event, in the actual learning process itself. Is that, I don't know if that's something you've come across much. I was quite, um, it made an impact on me because I thought, well, we can get mastery at the end of the learning phase, but it doesn't mean that that mastery of those learning objectives necessarily implies that they're going to be able to master the work in the real world. Yeah, I think this is also one of the challenges we as practitioners have around research is a huge amount of the research comes out of education um and so they're, they're dealing with a spot where they're not dealing with people in workplaces so yes it's, it, it's about that sort of showing the performance showing competency during a learning process rather than in, in, a, in a workplace process and i think that's where a lot of that dissonance that sometimes we have between research and, and workplace practice happens. Um, yeah, I particularly find that mastery word in the terms of um, the of, of primary off-the-job experiences really really challenging. Struck by by some senior manager who came into a TAFE at one stage, and he looked at an associate 
was an advanced diploma course. And he just went, didn't come from an education background at all. He went, no one can actually be competent in that unless they're running a, business, a tourism business. <laughs> um, and he was really quite. Yeah, that was that was his definite perception, and they had lots of students going through this particular program because yeah, they, they were they were getting off the job performance, but not on the job performance. Um, the, the that word performance, I found interesting. I was reading uh, just just recently, actually, I was reading a couple of articles. One of them was called "The Link Between Learning and Performance." Now, if you if you stop and think about that, the link between learning and performance, what does that actually say to us? Well, first of all. The article was about performance in the workplace. So they were using the word performance to mean workplace performance. But also using the, the term, the link between learning and performance implies that performance doesn't include learning because the learning was in the, in the learning uh, event. And I find this uh, very common across uh, most of the evaluation tools that I've looked at is there's this difference between learning and performance, but there's a there's a there's a problem there because learning includes performance because you you have to perform in some way during the learning process to illustrate, I guess, whether you've accomplished the learning objectives. And learning also happens during performance in the workplace because as we're performing and applying what we've learned before, we're actually learning. Um, and so I, I think that we have a real problem with the language. Uh, in the, and that it, it can be very confusing to people. So if I say to you that that my whole model is, you know, first you've got to get the learning and then you've got to get performance, the, the, you know, to me the hidden implication of that is for learning people, learning and development people is I don't have to worry about learning in the performance phase because learning comes before performance. And I, it might be a subtle thing, but I think it actually does make an impact on on people out there, particularly managers who don't understand what we do. It's a sort of our dark arts that we practice. <laughs> That's a, yeah, okay. The rethinking of the word performance. There's been so much people who've rethought about the idea of putting performance as a focus. I, I'm, I'm, not, yeah, I'm not against that at all because the performer, we could have a performer in the learning, in the learning space and we can have a performer in the workspace. And I quite, to me, that gives us some continuity around the word performer. It's also that getting back to that word mastery as well. I actually quite often think of, think of someone who's a master, is someone who does something, they perform and they learn from it and they keep that cycle going because they, they as they've got more expertise, they actually know what they don't know. They actually finally know what they don't know. <laughs> So that they can, their learning can become deeper. Yeah, no, it's absolutely. One of the things I, I should just highlight as we're going through the model is, uh, and this is a principle that I apply, um, it's just something I developed, is that the rigor of the process I use, the evaluation process, is based on what I call acceptable levels of evidence. So what I've found is that when I talk to managers, quite often the level of evidence that they are willing to accept that the, the process that, learning has happened is actually quite often lower than what I might have accepted. And part of that is because managers are used to making subjective decisions every day and they they don't run around doing an ROI on, on every time they need to make a decision. They know that that's just not feasible to do that. It's too much work and too much time. 
And so quite often when I'm going through this process, you know, I will actually say to managers, so what is the acceptable level of evidence that will convince you that, th that this is actually working? And I'm looking for indicators that, that they will be comfortable with. So I think that's quite an important thing. Managers often are happy to use qualitative data and, and it saves a lot of time from an evaluation point of view. And that doesn't mean that you're not going to go and do a more comprehensive uh, evaluation at some point in time, but I don't think all programs require the same level of evaluation. So that might, yeah. <laughs> that's a great tip around evaluation and assessment generally in terms of lots of things. What's the next lens? Um, the lens four is now where we move from the set phase to the go phase, go, well, to go phase and it's called recall performance. Now, this, is, this has come out of obviously cognitive psychology in particular that we know that retrieval practice is possibly the most powerful tool we have in our toolkit when it comes to uh, helping people to retain information in long-term memory. Now, I, of course, emotion plays a role as well, but a key role, in fact, in helping people to remember things. But, but recall uh, performance as practiced through things like the spacing effect and interleaving effect, um, these are all very powerful ways of helping people to remember what they've learned. So I, I must say I get a little bit uh, sort of sensitive when people say to me, you know, training is really bad because when people go to train, they forget 95% what they've learned in the next three weeks or some statistic like that. Um, th that's only because the training design hasn't actually incorporated techniques to help people to remember. And so I would be urging anybody who's doing design to build that into a, a, into a training program. And the recall performance is my, is my imperative one. And I actually share that with the participants. I, I in fact, I'm, I've got a, a financial acumen program that I'm running uh, for a client. And when they get to this phase, we actually say to them, right, you've got two imperatives. And imperative one is you need to make sure that you don't forget this stuff. Uh, while, because you cannot apply all of it at one go. And therefore, the learning curve, the, sorry, the forgetting curve will start. To um, but here's another interesting aspect to this. I found the, the, the approach of talking about off the job and on the job, I didn't find that helpful in this model to me because re recall performance, which is fundamentally retrieval practice, can happen out of the flow of work, but it could be happening anywhere. So they could be doing that on their mobile phone and they could be doing that in the workplace, but not in the flow of work, or they could be doing it outside of the workplace. So that that is also a little bit different, I think, to what I've seen happening elsewhere. Um, so we we would want to know how successful have they been in uh, in remembering what they learned, but we do that on the back of helping them to remember in the first place. Mm. <laughs> previous podcast person's just done a TEDx talk, Eva Kaufman, and she actually, one of her summaries is forgetting's important. Um, and she sort of talks about the fact that it's actually, it's important to forget what's not important to us. Yes. But, so, but yes. at the same time, it's also this recall thing is just so fundamental to um, the reason why we, um, why we really need, reason why behavior change doesn't always work um, 
And there's lots of reasons for that 95% think, think as well. I think, Jeff, I think sometimes we put too much stuff in learning experience, formal learning experiences as well. Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of training finishes at the end of the set phase, um, and 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 I'm talking about training design. So what I'm suggesting is we, you know, it's it's not difficult to extend our design to include recall performance. And if we did nothing else than that, we've already come a long way because just helping people to remember the knowledge and skills they've gained is you've in, you've increased the predictability of application significantly. Cool. Just before we move on to the next lens, um, what's your um, favorite tactic for recall? Oh, I uh, I use a combination of techniques. Um, there, there's some there's some lovely uh, lovely ideas that have been put forward on the learning scientists uh, website, and the you know what they say is you don't have to limit yourself to sort of multiple choice questions. So. Um, you know, I, yeah, that's a favorite. You give people, because it's simple, you can, you can send something to the, them on their mobile phone. My favorite is scenarios, you know, simple, easy scenarios. Um, you know, it could be, let's say, related to having a difficult conversation. You could send them a little scenario. It just could be really, really short. Bob said this in, re in relation to this response. And how do you think, you know, Bob should have responded or something? It could be an open ended. Uh, just a question for them to ponder on and then click to see what the suggested answer is or it could be they select from a limited number of uh, responses so scenarios is my favorite if you can yeah. thank you what's the next lens the fifth lens is moving us from recall performance to real world performance and of course this this uh, is the imperative two, the second of the two tracks that runs through the go phase. Now, that's a little bit more tricky, this lens, because I've actually incorporated three levels here. And this is, I think, for me anyway, I think this is the real strength of the Reset Go Show methodology and the, and, the, and the major difference between this and a lot of the other models that are out there in the marketplace. So there are three levels. The first, I actually have perceptions again. And we can measure perceptions of, of uh, support that people have been given in applying their learning. So we can ask, we can get perceptions from managers and from participants or their peers uh, as to whether this person is growing or and how whether they're having success in applying the learning in the workplace. Uh, the next one is called, I call process. Now process is is the uh, it's just really a way of saying there's a, there's a learning process that you have to go through in applying your learning in the workplace. So I, I use a, a process from self-regulated learning theory where we, you know, we look at, it's a very simple model. It's, it's forethought and then it's uh, the, some sort of application or doing and then there's afterthought. And uh, what we encourage people to do, and it, of course the digital technology today enables us to do all of this really, really easily is we ask people to say, well, what are you going to apply? Uh, what is it that you want to uh, achieve? And it could be very, very simple. You know, uh, what opportunity do you see coming up that you can use your knowledge and skill? What is one thing that you would like to apply? Um, and, and how will you know if you've been successful? It could be as simple as that. And then the next step would be, okay, so now you're going to do it. And while you're doing it, please, uh, we want you to keep a, a mental note of your own reactions as you're going through this process. 
how do you how you know how are you feeling uh, it could, it could, particularly if it's something stressful uh, how are you feeling how are you reacting to that and then afterthought would be well now let's look back at this experience and so what can you take away what went well what didn't go sell what would you do differently next time and just move them through this self-regulated learning process now uh, as they move through that wheel you can actually deepen the process you can get them to probe more deeply each time so in the planning phase for example you could start getting them to think about questions like what might inhibit me from taking this action what might interfere with my ability to be successful and how can i take steps to do something about that in the in the afterthoughts phase you might uh, it might be something like you know uh, how did i respond emotionally and what can i do to uh, increase my uh, emotional awareness or, or my self-regulation. It could be something along the lines of how do I increase my situational awareness uh, in the process of taking action? So there's lots of things you can do to, to bolster micro skills. So it's really quite a powerful process depending on how deep you want to go. Yeah, that's the, so we move from perceptions to process. Uh, you can measure process often by just capturing, getting learners to record uh, examples of what they've done in applying their learning. And that becomes a, a very rich source of success stories as well for for the uh, program that you're running. And then the, the third, which is a natural flow from that, which is what I call competence or proficiency. I, I put both competence and proficiency because I, I see competence at a slightly lower level, whereas I see proficiency is very similar to competence, but being able to perform at speed and under real-world pressure so those are the three levels within lens number five, or what I call real-world performance. What's the final lens? Uh, okay, so the final lens I've called performance outcomes. And there we are. Again, that's fairly traditional, I suppose, in many ways. It's, uh, it's productivity measures, financial measures, and metrics. Uh, it could even include ROI. So I, you know, I know models like the Phillips model have gone and put ROIs as a, as a separate level, but... As I mentioned earlier on, the rigor of the process is such that I don't want to have ROIs as a permanent measure sitting at the top. It just makes it look much more difficult than it needs to. So when we talk about performance outcomes, I've put ROI underneath that category. Becomes a, a spot where it can be put in as being quite relevant if it's a spot where, where ROI is really important for numerous, re for numerous reasons. Um, about one particular project we work on, worked on that had lots of international government funding, so the return on ROI was actually really important to the valuation process, and that was actually done by an accounting firm, and it was a really, really good thing to have happen, happen through that as well. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I, the advice that certainly I was given years ago was to select a small percentage of the the, the, the strategically important initiatives, and definitely do an ROI on those, but not try and do an ROI on everything because it would be um, too time-consuming and too expensive. And I, <laughs> Robin, I'm going to share this with you. Um, I was talking to a senior executive once, uh, and it comes back to rigor of the process. And and I was this is in the early years, and I was talking about you know doing an ROI. It was almost as if I'd taken it for granted we we're going to do an ROI. And he looked at me and he said, "Would you do an ROI on the left front wheel of your motor car?" <laughs> I said, no. He said, well, that's because you've got to have the wheel. And what you really want to know is, you know, how's the wheel wearing and is it performing at, how's it performing at different speeds? And, you know, is it 
is it uh, losing air or whatever? He said, but really, you know, you're going to have it anyway. So, <laughs> so we, we don't need an ROI. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a service train or something. <laughs> yeah, that's a really nice way of thinking about it. Yeah. Actually, what I really like about the model is it's not, there's, there's a few different lenses, but there's nothing particularly complex about it. I keep on being struck by your, your, your comment about the appropriateness of the evidence. And that keeps on being weaved through a lot of what you talk about as tactics in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the model as well. So it's not complicated to implement. Yeah, if I can show you an example of uh, many uh, people I've spoken to and I've said, you know, how do you want to evaluate this? And they've said, well, what do you suggest? And give me some options. And one of the options I've given them in the show phase is, is, uh, is, is a story, basically. You know, people getting participants to come back with a story and because, because they find it very easy to tell stories. And I said, if we, we get them to tell us a story of how they've applied their learning, and then I use the show acronym. So, so the story they have to tell us must incorporate uh, the situation that they found themselves in, uh, H for how they apply their learning, um, what were the outcomes uh, of the learning that was applied, and we, you can give people examples, of course, of outcomes that you're looking for. And the W was uh, we, we used for wisdom, which is, well, what have you learned from the process of applying your learning and what might you do differently next time. So that's encouraging them to see the wheel uh, from self-regulated learning. And then and then a lot of people I've spoken to said to me, you know what, that'll be just fine. <laughs> we don't need anything more than that. Um, and that's okay. If that's all they want, then, I'm, you know, it's easy to deliver. And there's some really nice things about narrative-based data and collection of things for, 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 for everyone as well. To wrap up a little bit, if someone was listening to this podcast and they really wanted to improve what their valuation process and practice is, what would be your greatest gem of advice, Jeff? I, um, I would say that the most, for me, the most important thing uh, with evaluation is to start shifting evaluation to the uh, real-world performance and to start evaluating, even if it's only at the level of perception, uh, start evaluating on the treating real-world performance as a learning process, uh, which then means that as L&D people, we have uh, inherent responsibility for that because that's our area of expertise. But the other point I wanted to make is that, and I, this really comes out of, I guess, out of some of the work we've done in the leadership space, which says, you know, I often use that expression, you cannot not communicate as a leader because, uh, and the other one, I guess, is quite common, actions speak louder than words. So the moment you start evaluating at the level of real-world performance and you start getting people to share their, the learning that they've accomplished as a result of applying what they got from the set phase, it sends very powerful signals across the organisation regarding accountability and what is expected of people. And it's that signalling mechanism that is so, for me, is one of the most important aspects of this. I, there was an article I read not long ago, uh, Alan Sachs and Lisa Burke wrote a research paper and they said that the level of training evaluation signals 
uh, differing degrees of accountability. That was, I remember the expression. Um, so I think that's, that for me is really important. If you don't, if you don't evaluate real world performance, then the signals you're sending are that uh, the application is not that important. It's a lovely way to wrap up the conversation. Um, Jeff, thank you for a really um, insightful conversation and sharing so many um, tactics, ideas, thoughts, and the model model as well. Um, there'll be some links to um, different resources you talked about in the show notes, as, show notes as well. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I totally enjoyed talking to you, Robin. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Learning While Working podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please leave a review. If you want to find out more about Sprout Labs, go to sproutlabs.com.au. We regularly run webinars and publish ebooks and guides about learning while working.